is Sid Rap on BFBS with Kate Chabot. It's 2019, and now if you're a woman, you can apply to do every job the British Armed Forces have to offer. It's been a long time coming. I went to the first Gulf War in 1990. When I came back from that in 1991, the world changed. In SITREP this week, we celebrate International Women's Day by hearing from some of the top female voices in defence. For more than 100 years, women have done vital jobs either in or supporting the military. In October last year, all roles in the British Armed Forces were opened up to women. At the last count, 10.5% of regular forces were women. That's 15,260. Recent years have seen rapid change for women in the forces. Ali Brown is the Vice President of the Women's Royal Army Corps Association. I went to the first Gulf War in 1990. When I came back from that in 1991, the world changed. And it was clear that the pace of acceleration was enormous. And by 1995, we were able to serve in most roles apart from um, the infantry and the armour corps, which is, has now been lifted. Well, in 2014, Colonel Lucy Giles, now president of the Army Officer Selection Board, became the first ever female college commander at Sandhurst. One of the girls said to me, we're so excited because we haven't seen a female in the academy of your seniority. And of course, it then dawned on me that it didn't really matter what I thought. You know, there is a role I had and a responsibility I had to, to lead, lead the way and um, embrace the opportunities that being um, the first woman in its 200-year history to do the appointment um, and take advantage of that and, and lead the way for those coming up behind me. Well, I'm joined by Dr. Karen von Hippel, Director General of the Royal United Services Institute and BFBS Defence Analyst Christopher Lee. Hello to both of you. Uh, Karen, a lot's changed, mm. hasn't it? Yeah, I know it's fabulous. I mean, I think it's so important to have women in senior positions so that younger women see that there are possibilities of promotion. Uh, and it only really serves to improve the quality and effectiveness of any organization. But every single study shows that diversity the more diversity you have, the better ideas you have, and the more effective you will be as an institution. And just last month, we saw Air Vice Marshal Sue Gray promoted to Air Marshal, becoming the RAF's first female three-star officer and the most senior woman in the British Armed Forces. Do you think we'll see more women pushing for those high command jobs? I hope so. Uh, we still have a long way to go. Uh, but I hope so, uh, and certainly women can do the jobs. It may not be quite as strong in some areas as the men, but I think even in the Marines, aren't they? Uh, they're really uh, get, at least getting on the lists and, and competing uh, when the physicality is really, really tough. There are some really strong, incredibly tough women out there. Christopher Lee, do you think things are changing? Well, they, they are changing, um, but you would expect them to as well. But let, let's let's get one thing straight. You're talking about the three-star officers, lots of two-star women officers around, one-star, etc., which says this thing is not just starting in the last two, three, four, five, ten years. It started 20 years ago. Otherwise, they wouldn't have got to those sort of those sort of ranks today. And then it takes another aspect, doesn't it? The, the, the hypothetical, or the question is, uh, would a woman, or when will a woman become chief of the defence staff? And the answer is, look at the roles that the officers who became chief of the defence staff had to go through. 
And women have got to go through all those sort of roles, those, all those sort of staff jobs, that's those sort of seniorities on a grand scale, you know, driving a division, for example, etc., and, and doing it nat- naturally, and then a whole commander's v- VC disc uh, as, as well before they get there. So it's, it's structure rather than the principle of a female being and in And your job. argument is that it, it might take longer because to get through all those roles is more difficult? Is that what you're saying? Well, it's more difficult. A, there aren't as many. That's the first thing. They're not in those jobs. I mean, you start getting uh, women going into sort of senior jobs in, in, let's say, in infantry. It takes longer to go through the system. It's, it's almost the building up. And just, just, just by numbers alone, you know, we're not saying, oh, well, we ought to have more women in, in the top jobs. It would be nice if you got people who are good enough to be able to choose or whatever. But don't think that people will turn around and say, well, it's about time we had a woman CDS. No, it's about time we had a CDS who was, who was good enough to be a CDS. Christopher, Karen, listen to this. Fine lines and wrinkles. I want to combat the signs of ageing. Strong, healthy hair. What's my secret? With my busy life, I don't have time to slow down. I can't believe we turned up wearing the same thing. I want a lip gloss that can stay on whatever life throws at me. All day protection, now with wings, so I can handle anything. Women should be defined by actions, not cliches. Every role in the RAF is open to everyone, from spare time to the front line. Now, that was the sound of the RAF's latest TV advert that challenges stereotypes of women in advertising. What really makes a TV ad is that the cliched comments you heard are coupled with dynamic images of women serving in the RAF. So when they talk of wings, it's not about sanitary towels, but about aircraft. Well, it won a million pounds of free airtime on Channel 4. The MOD wants to increase the number of female recruits across the forces to 15% of all intake by 2020. Well, the most recent figure show 12.4% of recruits were women. Our reporter, Sean Grezchek, has been speaking to Madeleine Moon, a long-serving member of the Commons Defence Committee. She asked her if she thought the MOD was doing enough to reach that 15% target. No, absolutely not. And really, it's so simple. They have to start having a different image of the military. And... I I had the RF presentation team come to my constituency recently and I said, I'm going to bring 110-year-olds. And they said, oh, no, we can't have 110-year-olds. And I said, look, these kids are bright and able. The second question they had was, is the RAF a good employer for women? (laughs) The guy nearly fell off his seat. It was wonderful. But these were 10 and 11-year-olds they just looked at images of high-technology jobs and they thought, wow, I'd like some of that. I'd like to do that. So there is a need to start with young people who might think, right, that's where I want to get to. So these are the things I need to do to prepare that step. So what more should they be doing? Well, actually, start going to where women are and talking directly to them and saying, this is what we can offer you. This is what a military career can be for you and unfortunately so many people think a military career means the infantry they've got no idea that you might be doing cyber defense they've got no idea that you might be helping to land planes they've got no idea that actually you can work on a nuclear submarine coming up through the ice in a nuclear submarine this is an exciting vibrant career that we aren't telling people about and is part of the mod's 
problem, uh, this whole fiasco with outsourcing recruitment. Oh, that was an absolute criminal neglect and failure of government. And what drives me crazy is there are so many young people who have taken other jobs, who wanted to join the military, but they got fed up of waiting. They got absolutely fed up and went elsewhere. We've lost talent, we've lost skilled youngsters, and we have to get quicker when people show an interest, actually bringing them in. And okay, you might have to do medical tests, but we can be engaging with them and employing them in the meantime. Do you think there would be far more women in the military now had the MOD not outsourced to Capita? Definitely. I think we'd, we'd have a better recruitment if actually you got the chance to go into a recruitment centre or on the phone actually talk to somebody who does the job. You know, let, there's nothing better than talking to an expert who will tell you this is the job, this is what you can expect, come and have a, a look, come and visit and we'll show you what you can expect. That's how you get people engaged. You don't do it by saying, you know, fill in a form online and we'll get back to you in six weeks and then it's six months and nothing happens. That isn't a vibrant organisation that you want to be recruited by. And uh, just finally, a few years ago, you called for an overhaul in the way bullying and sexual harassment is dealt with in the forces. Uh, Stories about this sort of thing can put women off from joining the military. Now that there is a a service complaints ombudsman, do you feel these issues are being properly addressed? Do you know, part of the problem is, whenever you say we need to address a problem, you open up people's capacity to actually think, oh, I can come forward and complain. It's happening to other people, so I can say it's happened to me. So, yes, numbers go up, but sometimes that can be positive. And complaints can be one of the best things that an organisation can have to learn lessons as to how it needs to change. Certainly, some aspects of the military are better at doing this than others. Some regiments are better at doing this than others. The more technologically based are definitely the best because it's skills that they're interested in, not what sex you are. So I'm not worried about the increases so much as I'm worried about are we learning the lessons, are we moving forward and are women feeling safe? They're the issues we have to address. That was Madeleine Moon from the Commons Defence Committee there. Well, with us today are Christopher Lee, our defence analyst, and Karen von Hippel from the Royal United Services Institute. Christopher, on that, on that point of recruitment, obviously she's going to say that Capita have done a bad job because she's saying, well, they haven't recruited men or women. But the point is, isn't it, that if you want to join the armed forces, if you're going to be persuaded to do so, you've got to be inspired by somebody to say, I could do that job. I just want to give you an example mm. of, of something that happened to someone on the SITREP team. Their daughter... Uh, was at school, the army went in to the secondary school to talk about jobs in the army, but there were no women. She was given an actual uh, glossy brochure with a woman on the front, but there was no woman there helping recruit. So it's not really encouraging a change, is it? Christopher? I don't think it's doing that at all. I mean, I just happen to think the whole recruitment, the emphasis on the recruitment is, is, is absolute rubbish at the moment because we have actually passed in society the doubts about whether it's a woman or a man to do the job. That's, you know, as usual, the MOD is being cautious about this but wants to open it up. But somebody watching, let's say, that advertisement, uh, it's, it's, it's terrible. It's making assumptions 
that are totally sort of outdated about women. I tell you, the last RAF uh, advertisement, yeah. it shows, hang on, it shows a, te- a techie uh, working on a, a Red Arrow uh, uh, aircraft. It shows the techie in the back seat doing all the all, all the all the checks before flight. It shows her under or, or the techie underneath with a spanner, etc. It doesn't mention the fact that she happens to be a woman. You can see she's a woman. So if you're trying to attract women, they say, "Well, yes, I could do that, or I might not be able to do that." I think there's far. I think they've they, they've missed out the fact that society is changing enough. You you do not have to explain the difference between male and female. Karen, um, when you host big events, you're laughing there. What have you got to say? Well, no, no, I was, I was going to say, I think Madeline is absolutely right that you need women in the room to help explain what the job is about so younger women can say, oh, she's doing the job and she can talk about how she does the job. I mean, in, recently in the States, it was very interesting, in the last congressional campaign, there was a female uh, pilot who had served in Afghanistan, who was married with two children, and she did this incredible campaign where she it started out. You know, this is a, my my stories about doors, and the door of her helicopter blew off, and then the door. Uh, you know, her mother was thrown out the door of the house. Her dad beat up her mother, and then she showed how she tried to get uh, uh, issues changed in Congress, and the congressman closed the door on her. And it was a fabulous. Uh, it was a fabulous ad. It had four million views. It wasn't. It was just put on Facebook. And so many people saw it, but what was to me the most impressive was exactly what, what Christopher was saying is no one emphasized that she was a woman, but here she was this really badass, if I can say that on the radio, sorry about that, woman who was a pilot, who was a mother, who was a professional and who was getting things done. And I do think it's important for younger women to be able to talk to women who are in the same field, not just look at the brochure, but to talk to other women. You don't need to emphasize that this is a woman, but have them there to help with the recruitment. And, and Karen, on that note, though, when you host big events at Rusi, say the Air Power Conference, do you see yeah. many? Other, do you see I mean, other women in the room, or is it mostly we men? We have a huge. We have a huge challenge when we have our military conferences. When we have other types of conferences and events, we have more women come. And I've talked to the various services about this because often they will send some of their own people. And I said to one of the service chiefs, you know, how many women are in this service? And he said fifteen percent. And I said, well, send us your women because it really makes a difference when you walk into a Rusi event and it's all male and even if you have one or two women on the panel it just changes everything mm. so absolutely we're, we're struggling with this and if any of your listeners have any ideas about how to increase the participation rate because of course we can't force people to come but we invite people we invite everyone we invite many many women to come but they don't always come and I don't know if it's because they don't they're not interested in the subject. They don't see themselves in that kind of role or if there are other reasons we're not doing the right thing. But absolutely, we are falling short, especially with our military conferences, not rem- with other areas. You've got to remember that it isn't just the, the services who have this struggle with this. Almost every job application in commercial life says gender Answer this, please. Well, in recent years, several women's networks have been set up to support and champion women in defence. There's the MOD Women's Network, the Army Service Women's Network. They're having their annual conference today. And in 2013, Commodore Ellie Ablett set up the Naval Service Women's Network. Here she is talking to Claire Sadler about why she decided to join the Navy. Well, my father was actually in the Royal Air Force. So many of the people who come to the armed forces have some form of connection in that way. And I also had the benefit of talking to an amazing recruiter who really um, inspired me to, to consider joining. And in 1993, the Women's Royal Naval Service was amalgamated into the Naval Service. So I found myself joining as a Royal Naval Officer, not as a Wren as well. So it was a very exciting time. 
because, you know, the, the Royal Navy had sort of modernised in this way. And I haven't really looked back since. And in, in 2013, you then went on to set up the Naval Service Women's Network. What exactly is that? And why did you feel the need to set it up? Yes, it's, um, a, it's a professional network, a, a virtual network in many cases, because, of course, service women are serving all over the world and just connecting them up via various means to really to help women, to help themselves, to help each other, but also to help the Royal Navy in its sort of journey towards being a, an inclusive employer of choice. The reason behind setting it up, though, was really I, I got promoted to commander. And for the first time, I suppose, I looked around and was surprised to see that there weren't more women there with me. And uh, it really piqued my interest and I got into the detail to understand, you know, what had happened over the preceding sort of 15 or 16 years of my career. Well, I think we'd come a long way with policy developments and with great, you know, maternity leave benefits and all of these sorts of things, opening up lots of different um, career opportunities to women just in the same way as men had them. But it felt to me like there was something a little bit missing and, and part of that really was I know that I hadn't supported women or actively supported women during my career. I'd just been getting on with it, you know, just, just another naval officer. And, and I felt that there was much more that we could do to support each other. And so what is the experience of women in the Navy now in 2019? We know there's equality of opportunity, of course, but what about sexism, the old boys club? And when they look around, as you did back in 2013, what, what are they looking at? So I haven't really experienced too much of that view of a sexist organisation over my career. That's not really what I was focused on when I was um, setting up the Naval Service Women's Network. You know, the nature of what we do, working together as, as close-knit teams um, out around the, the world doing our jobs, means that we're actually a pretty inclusive organisation right from the start. But that's not to say that women's experience won't be slightly different to men's just because we're in a minority. So I, I would describe it as a pretty inclusive culture in the Navy. And certainly, as I say, my, my experience has been very positive. But that we can always improve. And the very fact that women tend to leave the career earlier than men do in, and in larger numbers just means that we haven't been doing everything we can to encourage them to stay for a full career. And I suppose that is behind the reason that we don't get more women higher up the ranks in, in the services. There hasn't, for example, been a, a serving female admiral. Do you think we're going to see one soon? Absolutely. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, I... It, because of the nature of the military hierarchy, it takes a certain amount of time to grow people into the higher ranks. And um, when you consider that we now have three female Commodores uh, serving, a third one's just striping up now, and, and I'm at that point where I joined just as we were amalgamating, I think we'll, um, there are lots of fantastic women in the rank below and the rank below that as well. And also when you look at our ratings, you know, um, we had a, a number of um, women promoted to warrant officer again this year. So we're getting there. We are getting there. But it, it takes some time.
That was Commodore Ellie Ablett there. Uh, Karen von Hippel from the Royal United Services Institute is still with us. Uh, Karen, that, that's an interesting point that came out of the interview, that when she, when they were amalgamated, that she said, I'm just another woman. She didn't give enough support to other women who were in the Royal Navy. You have become the first Director General of the Royal United Services Institute. Where do you get the balance right of triumphing, triumphing the, 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 the breakthroughs that are made in terms of equality and, and actually getting, getting it, not doing overdoing it, if you see what I mean, just saying it should be happening anyway. Right. So I'm the first female director of RUSI. Um, you know, I'm more of an evolutionary versus revolutionary type of person. So, and I prefer to be, you know, I, I prefer to demonstrate if possible rather than shove things down people's throats. Um, you know, I am very lucky because I come from a long line of women professionals in my family. My mother was a doctor and my grandmother was a doctor. So I come from, you know, a, a I come, uh, let's just say I had a lot more support than many other women do who potentially may have come from more traditional backgrounds and didn't want that same path and maybe didn't have the same confidence that I have. But certainly we try to, uh, you know, we try, I'm involved in many women's networks here and I think over the next month I'm going to about four or five different Mm. International Women's Days events. uh, And we try really hard at RUSI not to have mantles, you know, where we only have men speaking. We try in so many different ways to promote diversity because it's really about diversity. It's not just gender diversity. There's ethnic diversity. There's all sorts of other types of diversity. So once you join the forces, what is it like as an employer, particularly when it comes to having a family? Well, Lisa Hartle has been talking to some mums who just happen to be in the army. Being a parent in the armed forces is challenging. Military life can be very stressful on families. Long separations, relocations and unpredictable schedules. Major Sarah Devonish says finding the balance can be hard. Both are really sort of demanding roles, being a a mummy and also being a soldier. Um, I feel incredibly lucky during my career as, um, as, a, as a soldier and as, as an officer um, because I've been really well supported, you know. Um, I've been really well managed throughout my career to make sure that um, what I'm doing is compatible with also being a mother as well. My husband's also serving too. So um, there's a lot of policy um, and changes taking place in the army um, that really makes it really quite workable to be a mother Um, and, you know, a serving, serving soldier. Until 1990, if a woman fell pregnant in the armed forces, she was forced to leave the services. Mum of two, Brigadier Sarah Sharkey, says policy changes mean the military has come a long way since then. So I've been in the army 28 years, and for me it's changed in two significant ways. One is the way the policies change, the things you can and can't do. So when I joined, uh, I had to leave if I got pregnant. Uh, it was part of the terms of conditional service, and after about four years I had to sign that right, right away, which is quite interesting. Uh, but also the policies of maternity leave and paternity leave and flexible working, that's changed enormously over those 28 years. But the culture changed as well. So what I find now is actually most of my male colleagues also want to spend time with their families, and it's not just something that mums want to do, it's something dads want to do as well. And so it's becoming acceptable for all to sort of behave in a much more family-balanced uh, balanced way at work. Defence Minister Tobias Elwood says women's roles in the military has changed considerably over the last 30 years. When I joined the armed forces, it was seen as very much a, a, a the male-dominant role, and the female was there to support. There's still more work to be done to provide parity between uh, men and women and no more so do we want that to happen uh, than in the armed forces as well. So I'm really pleased that all jobs are now open to men and women right across the piece whether it be pilots, doctors and so forth or in the infantry 
but it's important for youngsters to understand, uh, particularly the fact that this is actually possible. Though support for families within the military has improved over the years, some military mums I spoke to said one of the main areas where more work needs to be done is to tackle the impact on family life that comes with deployment. Lisa Hartle reporting, and if you're interested in the issues raised, there's a new book out called Mummy is a Soldier. So we've talked about the women who joined the military to be soldiers, sailors and air crew. Now let's talk about those who married into it. Maria Stutterford has been studying the impact of the unpaid work that military wives are expected to do. And she joins us now. Maria, good to talk to you today. First of all, can you explain what sort of work this is? Give us an example. Hello, Kate and Christopher. Thanks very much. Yes, um, the nature of the work is really diverse. So it's anything from um, peer mentoring to pastoral care, chairing committees, being formal trustees on boards, um, and undertaking representational duties for the service or the country, um, as well as using informal influence within the local community to, especially in a very transient community and an overseas community. Mm. You married into the military, of course, yourself, didn't you? Um, tell us a bit about what kind of unpaid work you've done. Uh, I've done a whole diversity of, of things. I've been on local charity committees. Um, I've been on the nas- big national trustee boards. Um, overseas, we've spent 12 years overseas, and most of that work was representational work, hosting dinner parties, hosting formal guests, official guests, and representing the country um, and the services. Briefly, the landscape is changing, isn't it, as both both sides of a partnership want to do work themselves. How can the military adapt to that? So women are give, being given more choices and I my research focused specifically on women and on senior spouses and as they're given more choices there's two situations. One is that there are fewer women doing unpaid work and so how would we fill that gap? Um, that might be reaching into the civilian voluntary sector to do some of the, the pastoral care work for example. Yeah. But more important than that is actually getting the right support in place for the people who do do the work, be they spouses or volunteers. And that support might be peer support, like your previous um, interviewees have spoken about. It could be specific programs of training for for spouses and accrediting the work and evaluating the unpaid work so that it is better valued. Okay, Maria Stutterford, good to talk to you. We'll have to leave it there for today. Thank you for your time. Now, before we end the programme today, let's talk about women in conflict, in particular girls. Sarah Brown, the wife of the former Prime Minister, Gordon Brown, is chair of Their World, a charity which helps children in difficult circumstances, including conflict, get access to education. Well, today she hosted the charity's International Women's Day Breakfast in central London, where she spoke to Sitrep's Gisela Waldron. So we gather together every year for International Women's Day and at Their World we're really trying to celebrate women's voices and how we can collaborate with each other and partner with each other. Most of the year round we're head down with our own challenges. At Their World we're very focused on education, particularly education in emergencies affecting children in conflict and we brought that theme into the breakfast this year, um, sharing some fantastic young voices, women around the world who face tremendous challenges in just being able to go to school themselves, who've overcome those and are now campaigning for other girls and women around the world. So I think our message really is of partnership and collaboration. We have um, 
well, we have these huge problems that we face in the world and the cooperation might not be the kind of at the heart at the heart of why it's not working, but it's certainly a way through to find the solution. And you had some good news for some Syrian refugees in Greece. Well, Their World and uh, Education Cannot Wait Fund have had some fantastic news this week where we've received a huge grant from the Dutch Postcode Lottery that of millions of euros that allows us to put it towards the young Afghan and Syrian refugees who've been caught up in the Greek islands and without any support there. And we've got a grant now that will allow all of them, all 6,000 of those children across the region, to be able to go to school. How does war and conflict impact on girls, in particular their education? I think girls are really adversely impacted where there's conflict. They're very at risk personally, their personal safety is at risk. Um, the chance of them being disrupted from their education, not being able to continue it, deprives them of their future too and their chance to unlock their potential. And where girls around the world miss out on an education, they are at risk of early marriage, they're at risk of child labour, some are at a severe risk of trafficking. Um, so those are all quite extremes. But even without that that danger, there's also the fact they're just deprived of their chance to grow up, to mature, to enjoy life, to create an economic prosperity for themselves and, and their family and their community. So girls always are on the sharp end of it. Um, they're on the sharp end where there's extreme poverty and they're really on the sharp end when there's extreme conflict too. That was Sarah Brown. Well, I'm afraid that's all we have time for in this International Women's Day special. My thanks to Dr. Karen von Hippel and all our other guests and contributors. What do you think about what you've heard? Join the conversation on Twitter at BFBS Sitrep. From me, Kate Chabot, thanks for listening. Bye-bye for now. <laughs>